All right, well, let's return again to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. And as you're turning there, using our sanctified imaginations, I want you to think about what it must have been like among the angels of heaven after Gabriel had just been sent on his mission to Zechariah. So so for more than a thousand years, angels had been fulfilling the different tasks that God gave them, tasks to serve the welfare of God's people on earth. But at the heart of it all was this great promise concerning a Messiah, And somehow, through this Messiah, God would remain holy and just and righteous, and yet he was going to be able to show mercy and marvelous grace to a sinful people. And it was this great riddle, how somehow through a Messiah is God going to be able to stay holy and bless sinners? And some of the most important angels, the the head honchos of the angelic world, well, they had been given some very special missions related to the Messiah. For example, they had been sent to visit Abraham. Uh, They had been involved in, as we just heard, read from, from Galatians, angels were sent to be involved as the law was given and the covenant was established at Mount Sinai. And remember, every one of those laws ultimately pointed to the Messiah, prepared the way for the Messiah, as Galatians 3 just told us. We know that an angel named Michael had been given special charge over the people of Israel to make sure that all was well with them as they came to the day of the Messiah. But it seems to have been Gabriel who was God's choice messenger. It was Gabriel who had been sent to Daniel in Babylon to reveal all of these things that would happen as the day of the Messiah's coming drew near. And here, lately, it was Gabriel who had suddenly received this commission from God to go to Jerusalem, that important city, that bustling city, and he was to appear in the temple to a priest who was worshiping there. And Gabriel delivered the message from God that the one who would pave the way for the Messiah The Elijah who would show that the Messiah was just around the corner. He was soon to be born. So after Gabriel's mission to Zechariah, I think the angels in heaven were all abuzz. Because they knew even perhaps better than the people on earth. That any day now, God would reveal that the time of the sending of the Messiah was here. Any day now, that great son of David, the king whose kingdom would would last forever, that king was going to be born. I, I can imagine 
uh, angels huddled together on their work break and they're all speculating about how's this going to happen and what's this going to look like and, and what do you think God's going to do to bring this about? Remember, we're told in the New Testament that the salvation of men and God's great plan of redemption is something into which angels long to look. They were always wondering, what's God going to do next? How's he going to surprise us next? What's this going to be like? Angels are fascinated by grace. No angel has ever received grace. Never. Angels are not beings who have ever experienced the mercy of God. And so when they see what God is doing with man, when they see grace, when they see mercy, it, 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 it thrills them. They, they love seeing the wisdom of God displayed in his ways with men. And so they're fascinated by all that's happening. And then this day comes when Gabriel is again summoned to the throne room of God. And I imagine Gabriel getting a little antsy. This could be it. This could be the big one. (laughs) This could be the mission we've been waiting for. And sure enough, God gives him the commission. And, 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 And in some way, God says to Gabriel, go and speak to a young lady and tell her that she is about to become the mother of the Son of God. And then Gabriel hears something he probably didn't expect, one of those surprises. Tell her that she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit, though she is yet a virgin. Now, God has always loved working in miracle births. Okay, miracle births are a staple of God's ways. Uh, miracle births have a prominent place in the history of God's people. God loves to show that he's the ultimate one who gives life by causing some of the most important people in history to be born only by an answer to prayer and only after the parents were so old it could only have been God that did the work. But this is different. This is the miracle birth above all miracle births. God is telling Gabriel, you're to go tell this young lady that the Messiah is going to come into the world supernaturally. He is going to be conceived supernaturally. Okay, so Gabriel is ready to be sent. He enjoyed his trip to the temple. He enjoyed his trip to Jerusalem. Is that where he's going this time? He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to the center of it all. No. No, this young lady that you're going to go to, Gabriel, she's in Nazareth. And I think Gabriel probably said, where? (laughs) Uh, Nazareth was tiny. Jerusalem had 100,000 people in it. Nazareth, we think around 400. Nazareth was a tiny settlement in the midst of hills. Uh, It's never mentioned in the entire Old Testament. Not one place will you find Nazareth mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, Gabriel probably had to ask God for directions. Where where am I going again? How how am I going to get there? What a strange surprise that the mother of the Messiah would come from such a small and seemingly irrelevant place as this. And yet, in obedience, surprised but excited about his mission, Gabriel goes to Nazareth. Now, that's all my imagination of what what it might have been like. 
Here's the word of God of what happens next. Let's see it. Verse 26. Verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So by my best figuring... We're now in the year 5 B.C. Mary's cousin, Elizabeth, is now in her sixth month of pregnancy with the child who will later be called John the Baptist. And Mary is in this little town of Nazareth of Galilee. Luke calls Nazareth a city. He's certainly using that word loosely. Nazareth, very small place. You can imagine in a town of 400 people, everybody knew everybody. Uh, we think this was a conservative town. It seemed to be a town with a, with a little synagogue. Uh, a town where folks were probably of the conservative party, the Pharisee party. Uh, there probably weren't many of the liberal Sadducee party who lived in Nazareth. This was a town where everyone probably had to work hard just to sustain their, their difficult lives. Uh, the people in, in Nazareth spoke Aramaic. Uh, that language that had come to them through the time of the Babylonians. Uh, It does appear that while this was a very small country people, people of of the hills, uh, yet they were illiterate people, uh, especially the men, uh, probably because of their commitment to studying the Torah, the law of God, the word of God. uh, So they were able to read, uh, perhaps to write. Let me see if I can help us get our bearings about Nazareth, because we're going to be here for two or three weeks. So if, if, if you're Mary and you're in Nazareth, um, I'm going to say look west. Mary looks west, she sees hills. 20 miles beyond the hills, the Mediterranean Sea. 
Uh, if you go west of the hills and just a little bit here, uh, just slightly to the north, she would have come to the town of Sephorus. Sephorus was much bigger than Nazareth. It was a bustling town of trade. There was a trade route that went from Egypt to Lebanon that passed through there. Uh, when Mary or her family needed to go to town. When Jesus, as a boy, accompanied his parents to go shopping and get the things they need, they probably went to Sephorus. And that's important because it was not a Jewish city. It was built as a Greek city. It had Greek columns. It had cobblestone streets. It had a theater. Uh, Josephus calls it the Ornament of Galilee. And yet, while it was a Greek city, it was definitely Jews that lived there. Uh, for example, archaeologists tell us that in the trash pits that they've dug up there, there are lots of animal bones, but you don't find pig bones in those trash pits. And so we know it was you know, Jews that lived there. I grew up in Northampton County, very rural area. There were 33 people in the town I grew up in. Uh, when we went to town, we went to Roanoke Rapids. We thought that was the big town. Well, for Jesus growing up in Nazareth, for Mary, uh, big town was Sephorus. And uh, that's, they had to cross the hill and cross the hills and then go a little bit to the north. There was Sephorus. Uh, if Mary looked north on a clear day, she saw more hills. But above the hills, she would have seen Mount Hermon. Um, Mount Hermon, uh, much of the year, snow. On the peaks, and so she would have been able to see the snowy peaks of Mount Hermon. Uh, to the east, if she looked to the east, more hills. This was a town surrounded by hills, and yet 20 miles that way, 20 miles this way is the Mediterranean Sea, 20 miles this way, the Jordan River. And John the Baptist is going to spend a lot of time along the Jordan River preaching. That's where people will go to hear him preach. Only looking to the south, where there are no hills. Nazareth sat right on the northern border of the plain of Jezreel. And the plain of Jezreel was this large plain where a lot of Old Testament events took place. Gideon and his 300 Israelites that defeated the Amalekites. Okay? Remember God kept sending people home until the army was down to 300 people. And then they defeated the Amalekites. That happened right there close to Nazareth on the plain of, of Jezreel. A little further that way... Um, the, a great defeat of Israel by the Philistines during the days of King Saul had happened on this plain. A little further that way in the plain of Jezreel is where Elijah had defeated the prophets of Baal. And you remember that he had all those prophets of Baal killed after God rained down fire on the sacrifice. That happened in the plain of Jezreel. Uh, this way uh, she would look and she would see Mount Tabor uh, rising up on the border of the plain. Why am I telling you all this? So you got hills, 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 Mediterranean Sea, Jordan River, Mount Hermon that way. She looks this way. Jerusalem's way south, probably about 45 miles. But between there and Jerusalem is Samaria. Uh, if Mary and others in Nazareth wanted to go to Jerusalem, they had to pass through the land of the Samaritans or go way out of their way to go around. And so she would have to pass through Samaria. Um, if she wanted to go to, for example, the little town of Bethlehem, it was another five miles south of Jerusalem. So it passed through Samaria, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Enough geography. Hopefully that gives you your, your bearings. Luke tells us a little bit about Mary. Uh, Luke tells us her name. She's called Mary. 
Uh, we've already seen Luke isn't someone who's very concerned about the meanings of names. He doesn't often go out of his way to talk about what a name means. But we do think that Mary means beloved, one greatly loved. But it also is connected to the word Mara, which means bitter. And you may remember in the book of, of Ruth how Naomi says uh, after her husband dies and her sons die, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, M-A-R-A. Call me bitter because the Lord has been bitter to me. And so in this name, Mary, you have both these ideas, this idea of being beloved by God and yet of, of bitterness. It is worth reflecting on how we see Mary particularly loved by God in her life, and yet her life is going to be a life of bitterness. Uh, her life would be one that was difficult. It would not always taste sweet. There would be very difficult days ahead for this young lady, all culminating in the day that she would weep at the foot of the cross as her son died in agony. But that day is still a long time away for her. This is, that's, that, that's Mary as a mature woman when she's weeping at the, the foot of the cross as her son dies in agony. No, right now, uh, she's still a young, a, a young lady. On that day, God will have prepared her through other trials to be ready for that test. She's not there yet. Right now, she's a young maiden. Uh, she's betrothed. Most people think she's between 12 and 14 years old. Those were typically the years in which young ladies were betrothed to be married in that culture, 12 to 14 years old. In our culture, we would probably still consider her a girl, but in, in that culture, she was considered a young woman. Uh, down in verse 42, Elizabeth is going to greet Mary, and she's going to say, blessed are you among women, not blessed are you among girls. And so even though she's 12 to 14, she was considered a young woman. Uh, the man that Mary is betrothed to is Joseph. Joseph appears to have been a young fellow from the same community, Nazareth. So again, little neighborhood, 400 people. He's a carpenter there in uh, Nazareth. To be betrothed meant that the legal process of marriage had already begun. By the time we meet Mary... Joseph had already come to Mary's father. He would have already paid a bride price. And this was a way that the young man could show the young lady's father, I'm able to take care of her. I can provide for her. I can meet her needs. And so Mary's father had received the bride price. And with that transaction, Mary was actually now legally Joseph's wife. Uh, to end the betrothal required a, a writ of divorce. So they were considered husband and wife even as they were betrothed. It's stronger than what we have being engaged. It's much stronger than that to be betrothed to someone. But Jewish custom was that once the two were betrothed, they were to remain separate from each other for a space of one year. And the reason was so that the husband could make all the preparations necessary for the new life together. It usually meant that there was a preparing of a house. Uh, sometimes it meant building a new house. Often it meant adding on to the young man's family's house uh, for them to move in. And then it would be after this time of separation 
that the husband would come for his wife. There would be this great wedding feast. Sometimes the wedding feast lasted days. Sometimes the wedding feast lasted as long as, um, as a week. And all of the people who were connected to the family, all of the people in the town would come and would celebrate. And then after the feast, the husband would take his wife and they would consummate the marriage. And so when we meet Mary, she's in that in-between period. She's betrothed. She is legally Joseph's wife. To break off the marriage would have required divorce, but she's still waiting for that period of a year to end when Joseph will come and actually take her and they will have the big wedding feast and enter into their new life together. Now in verse 28, the SV simply says that Gabriel came to her. Uh, but the word in the Greek implies Gabriel entering into a structure. So remember, Luke has talked to folks to gather this information. Uh, remember, Luke tells us he interviewed people. He gathered information to write this gospel. It is very possible Luke could actually talk with Mary herself about these events. And what we have here is that Mary appears to be inside maybe her home. If not her home, she's in some kind of building. And suddenly the angel Gabriel enters through the doorway and greets her. We're not told what Gabriel looked like here. Uh, it appears again he took the form of a man like he probably did with Zechariah. And what does he say as he comes into the door? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, that's not the way we typically greet each other. Is that how you greeted each other this morning, right? She came into church. Greetings, oh, favored one. The Lord is with you. What? Well, you know what? That's not the way Jews typically greeted each other either. This was weird. This was something different. This was something where we're told that Mary was troubled by the greeting. It's this idea of confusion. What, what, what could this possibly mean, this strange Man, more than a man coming into my house and, 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 and greeting me this way. It, it is interesting. Luke doesn't say she was troubled at seeing an angel, which means uh, probably that Gabriel uh, isn't very angelic at the moment, right? He, he's not showing himself in a whole lot of glory. I think probably in kindness to Mary, not to startle Mary, he appears very much as a man. Maybe as she continues to talk to him, he might be turning up the volume a little bit at a time on his glory, showing who he is. But we don't know. It does seem clear that Gabriel comes in kindness. Uh, Gabriel comes not wanting to scare Mary, not wanting to startle Mary. Now, we do have to address an issue from verse 28. Okay, uh, When Jerome translated this verse from Greek to Latin, in the Bible that would shape the Roman Catholic Church for centuries, in his Vulgate, he translated the Greek word that means favored one, he translated that as, into Latin as plenus gratia, full of grace. Favored one, he translated as full of grace. Have you ever heard Roman Catholics talk about Mary, full of grace? Uh, it's not a good translation. But that faulty translation led this verse, uh, of this verse, led Catholic doctrine 
uh, to be what it is today. Namely, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was and is so full of grace that she has grace to spare. Uh, that when you need grace, you pray to Mary because she's full of grace. She has extra grace and she can give you some of her grace for your situation. You've probably heard your, your Catholic co-workers, friends, neighbors talk about praying or saying Hail Mary, right? The Hail Mary prayer. A Catholic may go to their confessional. They may confess their sins to a priest. And the priest may tell them to pray three Hail Marys. Well, what that means is the priest is saying, I want you to pray to Mary three times, asking Mary to pray for you to her son, and then asking for her to give you some of her grace, because she is plenis gratia. She is full of grace. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. That's the prayer, the Hail Mary, that Roman Catholics are taught to pray. We just need to be very clear about this. This is not trying to attack Roman Catholicism in any way, but we just need to be clear. This verse does not teach any of that. Uh, all of that doctrine, all of that idea was, was developed over centuries from a false translation of verse 28. Verse 28 is not saying that this young lady has so much grace that she has some despair. This verse does not teach the immaculate conception, which came from this verse. The, the idea that Mary was herself born without original sin. This idea that Mary was born without any sinfulness in her heart and therefore she is full of grace. This verse and no verse in the Bible calls us to pray to Mary. Nor does any verse in the Bible ever teach us to ask Mary to pray for us. Those are all tradition built upon tradition, built upon tradition. And with each generation, it was going further and further and further away from the biblical text. What we have in this passage is simply a young lady who's been favored by God. Favored by God in what way? Favored in that he has chosen for her to be the mother of the son of God. She's not a super saint. She's going to be saved by the blood of Jesus, just like every one of us. She's going to be in need of his grace, just like every one of us. What we have in Luke chapter one is a teenage girl in a little rural village in Galilee who's been chosen by God for a very special purpose. She is favored in the sense that God has set his attention on her. That God has, has turned his special focus on her in order to bless her in a special way. Is that clear? Is that fair, the way we've handled that? Our passage tells us that Mary was troubled by Gabriel's greeting. And that might be because she's thinking, how am I a favored one? Why, why is this man drawing attention to me? That was probably very unusual for her. 
to have a, a, another man in the, in the town, right? To have this man come in and draw attention to her. You're favored by God. And so Gabriel seeks to set her mind at ease. Verse 30, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And then he gives her this message about the child to be born to her. And next time we're going to look more intently at exactly what Gabriel tells her about this child. But the message does include the fact that Mary is going to have a baby. The, the promised son of David, who's going to reign forever and have an eternal kingdom, is going to be born to her. And Mary's response is an honest one. Um, it's not a response of doubt. Remember Zechariah? Zechariah responded with doubt. When Gabriel said to Zechariah, you're going to have a miracle child, Zechariah basically said, prove it. He wanted a sign. What sign can you give me to know that this will be true? The whole thing seemed far-fetched to Zechariah. The whole thing seemed unbelievable to him. And Gabriel ended up putting on him an act of discipline because he, he responded that way. That's not Mary's response. She's not questioning Gabriel's message. She just doesn't understand how it's possible. She's trying to figure it out. How is this going to come about? One commentator says it this way. Mary was overwhelmed by the incomprehensible grandeur of the announcement. And so in surprised wonder, she says, how will this be since I am a virgin? She doesn't ask, how can this be, questioning God's power. She asks, how will this be? In other words, what's this going to look like? What should I expect here? And maybe Gabriel's going to tell her, well, you're going to, you know, uh, Joseph's going to come get you. And together you are going to have this child. No, that's, that's not what he says. Gabriel's answer is astonishing. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Put yourself in this 12, 13, 14-year-old girl's shoes. What does this mean? The, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That answer is so astonishing that Gabriel very kindly immediately helps Mary by telling her about what God's done for her cousin Elizabeth. Reminding Mary that nothing is impossible with God. Obviously, the implications for Mary are massive. She's going to conceive a child during her betrothal period. That's considered adultery. Because she's considered married to Joseph. And he's going to know he's not the father. And everybody in town is going to know about this. Remember, 400 people. Okay, everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everything. Everybody's going to know about this. How is she going to explain this to Joseph? How is she going to explain this to her own family? How is she going to explain this to the community around her? Who's going to believe a story like this one? Would you have believed it? It takes no imagination to know how people are going to think. Mary are going, uh, people are going to look at Mary as an adulterer, as a fornicator, as a loose woman. Based on the law of God, she could be legally brought before the town elders and they could stone her to death. 
It's not just her reputation, it's her family's reputation that is on the line, and it is her life that is being put at risk here. And yet there is no sign that Mary took any thought to these things as Gabriel spoke. Probably she hadn't even had a moment to think about it all yet, (laughs) all these implications. I mean, you can imagine, I don't think she slept much that night, right? There was a lot going through her head. But it is amazing what she says, isn't it? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Whatever the implications, whatever it means for me, whatever it means for my reputation, whatever it means for my family's reputation, whatever it means for my life, whatever it means, if this is the Lord's will, I am his servant. Let it be as he said. Uh, Martin Luther says that there are three miracles in this passage. Uh, He says one is the miracle that a virgin is going to give birth. The second is the miracle that God himself is going to become a man. But he says the third miracle in this passage is that this young girl would hear this message and submit to God's will. And he says that miracle is not the least of the three. A virgin giving birth is a miracle. God becoming man is even more amazing But perhaps even that doesn't compare to the grace in a human heart that would move it to submit to God's will in something like this. Three lessons, very quickly. Three lessons. Here we go. Number one, note that God works in mysterious ways. We could just stop and sing the hymn, couldn't we? But we won't. God works in mysterious ways. Who would have guessed from the Old Testament that the woman God would use to bring his son into the world for, would come from such an obscure place as Nazareth. There was no hint of this. This is a curveball from God. This is a surprise. Around Galilee, we know there was a saying. And that saying was, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right? You hear how people talk about Rocky Mount sometimes? We talked about this yesterday. How, you know, yeah. People sometimes say all kinds of negative things about Rocky Mount. You know? Oh, there's nothing good in Rocky Mount, right? Well... That's Nazareth, okay? Can can anything good come out of of Nazareth? This was a despised place. This was Podunkville is what this was. There was nothing to recommend it to our attention. Nobody on a map would have said, that's where God's going to bring about the Messiah. And yet in his wisdom, God chose a teenage girl from here and her carpenter husband from there, Nazareth, to be the one to raise the son of God. Of God. This place is going to be the hometown of our Lord. Mount Hermon, we need to recognize how wondrous are the ways of our God. 1 Corinthians 1 says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. What's the point of all this? Why does God work in this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Maybe you're feeling small this morning. Maybe you feel insignificant, looked down upon, useless to God. Do you remember how David was the least of his brothers? 
That, that when it came time to choose which of the brothers would be king, the dad, Jesse, didn't even think to bring him in from the field. Every, all the other brothers are lined up there, but, but surely not David, right? Do you remember how Gideon showed absolutely zero characteristics of a leader? Nobody would have pointed to Gideon and say, there's the next judge of Israel. Think about the widow and her might. She had so little to offer up to God. I mean, it's, it, the widow comes and she puts her penny in the offering plate. What could possibly come from that? And yet, how many people have been brought to Christ? And how many people have invested millions overall because of what that lady did and her story being recorded and passed down? Our God works in mysterious ways. Lesson number two. Nothing is impossible with God. This is the God who parts waters. This is the God who rains down fire. This is the God who causes donkeys to talk. This is the God who makes axe heads float. This is the God who violates his own laws of physics as he multiplies ounces of oil, as he multiplies loaves and fishes. This God spoke and created all that is. He's not bound by any scientific law because what we call scientific law is really just the way God usually works. That's what scientific law is, the way God usually works. But God can work any way he pleases. There is no obstacle in your life too great for him, and there is no limit to what he is capable of doing. If you're here this morning as a Christian, God has already worked supernaturally and miraculously in your life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. You were blind. You were deaf to his glory. And Jesus, through the power of the gospel, brought you to life. God caused you to see. God caused your ears to hear. God saved your soul. Nothing is impossible with God. The miracle you've already experienced of knowing that you were once walking this way and you didn't really care about God and you didn't want to acknowledge His holiness and you were living your own life, your own way, and God got a hold of you and saved you and put you on this path so the things you used to despise, you now love. And the things you used to love, you now see as rubbish compared to knowing Christ Jesus. If you've experienced that, you've experienced a miracle. And so you shouldn't be surprised when you hear that God is not limited and that he can do anything he so pleases. Nothing is impossible with God. Number three, note that the heart of a disciple is ready to declare, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. The heart of a disciple is ready to declare, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Mount Hermon, let this challenge us. Can you say this morning, I am a servant of the Lord. Whatever he would choose for me, let it be. 
Do you see yourself this way in our day of identity politics where, where your gender is apparently everything about you or your sexual identity is everything about you and your, your racial identity is everything about you and you're to think of yourself as I am a white male or I am a uh, black woman. Our culture says that that's the identity that matters. And when you go to the Bible, it just doesn't say that much about all that. It says here is the identity that matters. Here is the identity that the apostles boasted in. Paul could have said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. But instead, way more often, and usually before he says that, he says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Same thing with Peter and his epistles. Same thing with John. Same things with James. The apostles love to boast in this identity. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. What is shaping the way you see yourself, dear Christian? What is the identity that you care most about? It ought to be the fact that you are a blood-bought servant of the Lord. This is our joy because it is higher and better and more wonderful to be a servant of King Jesus than to have any other station in the world. Being president of the United States or a Supreme Court justice or a famous movie star does not compare with the glory of being a servant in the kingdom of Christ Jesus. It just doesn't compare. One's temporary, it's glittering like gold, but it's not gold. The other's the real thing, and it will last, and it matters. We live in a day in which there are so many who name the name of Jesus, so many who profess Jesus as their Lord, but their lives deny that profession. When you actually look at how they live day in and day out, they are living according to their own whims. They are living according to their own self-centered wants and desires. They are not walking around as servants of the Lord saying, what would my master have me do? What would my master have? College or no college? Well, let me see. What do I think? No. What would my master have me do? Which college? What would my master have me do? Get into this relationship or not go into that relationship? What would my master have me do? Take that job or not that job? Get into this new TV show or not get into this new TV show? Read that book or not read that book? Talk to that neighbor or not talk to that neighbor? Get involved in that situation, situation or stay out of that situation? And so often people who even call themselves Christians are just making that decision just based on themselves with no thought of God, no thought of Christ, no thought of themselves as, I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. I am a servant of the Lord. What would he have me? Mary says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you will. So when you're asking questions, tomorrow you're going to have questions that come in front of you. Decisions you have to make. What's going to provide the answer for you? Are you going to act on your feelings? Please don't act on your feelings. You want a faulty guide? Be led by your feelings. That's shipwreck. That's what that is. That's shipwreck. Are you going to be led by your own understanding? I hope your understanding is growing, but your understanding is so small compared to God's. Don't lean on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart and seek his direction. 
Trust the Lord with all your heart and say, God, what would you have me to do? Let me ask it again this way. We're almost done. What is the controlling influence of your life? Can you say with honesty and a clean conscience that on a practical level, this is who you are? I am a servant of Jesus. His word is my command. Or must we not admit, every one of us, that in all honesty, too often, we are still serving the Lord of self. We are still serving the Lord of our own selfish wants and desires with little thought of Christ. Though he loves us and cares for us and knows what's best for us. And so I think there's a call here for confession, for repentance, to run to Jesus as our only Savior. And then also for us to pray, oh God, would you make us like Mary in this passage, may we be willing to give ourselves to your will to do whatever you would have us to do, come what may. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.